Okay, so to get things started, well, uh, I, I have been asked this question, and I do think it's worth talking about and discussing, um, and then we'll get to some of the one, ones that we have uh, been given in here. Let's just start at the beginning, or, or start kind of in a way that is a bigger picture kind of way back. We, we talk a lot about Moses giving his sermons, and we talk about the shape of Torah and these first five books of the Bible, um, and we talk about authorship. And a lot of times when we talk about authorship and we talk about uh, who wrote the Bible, who wrote this book, you and I will oftentimes laugh and kind of go, yes, it matters, it's an interesting and worthwhile conversation, but at the end of the day, we have the text that we have, and that's what matters. I think you would agree, and I would agree here on this, that Deuteronomy is a little bit different uh, in understanding authorship and uh, understanding the way the book was shaped and formed. Mm -hmm. And we've talked some about that. And so sometimes when I'm preaching or when you're preaching, you would say or I would say, the author is using Moses, or uh, Moses was saying, and, and we kind of go back and forth. Explain a little bit how our understanding of how Deuteronomy was formed and shaped and who the author, uh, or how we understand authorship of Deuteronomy. Yeah. This is complicated because for a lot of people, if it's not Moses that wrote Deuteronomy, then they're like, oh, well then my whole life is a lie. Um, and it's like, like it really feels like this is, this is difficult because that's what everybody's always been saying. We've always been saying Moses wrote the first five books of the law. Uh, but there's so many times, if you've ever sat down and read Genesis through Deuteronomy, you go, I, I don't see how that could be possible. You know, like, why would somebody write about themselves before their death, talking about their death and how it happened? And, it, like, all these sorts of things. Like, it's very obvious to, to most folks that it's like, okay, well, there's, there's some aspect of it um, that is not so clear to us. And we don't have a window into what was happening. We know this about, like, modern-day authorship. You go... Yeah, so-and-so wrote a book. You know, Tim Tebow wrote a book. You're like, no, he didn't. Some ghostwriter was sitting there. You know, it's like he's got somebody helping him out. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, if I ever write a book, just know somebody else was helping me with it. I called Grant Francis up, and I was like, dude, I need your help desperately. Just like, like there's, there's just this awareness that it's like, but we don't think to ourselves, and it's like, well, then it's all a lie. It's not real. We understand this stuff has been communicated, and it's the same thing, and it's hard for us to know, and there are so many debates about it. But in Deuteronomy, it's, there, there are these places where it becomes somewhat clear. It's just like, okay, this seems like maybe people reflected on what Moses had said in the sermon, and they added clarity to it. Uh, it's like they were like similar to like commentary, and it's like they're adding their own commentary from their own experience. Like Moses is teaching them something, and they're continuing to teach the generations after them. That's what Deuteronomy is. It's really unique in that way. Um, that, that's what I think is really cool about Deuteronomy is that all these other books are, are very much history, uh, and they're, they have a very specific purpose. Deuteronomy is a reflection on everything they've been through and how it affects what they're about to do. Like, how does this speak to you now? And that, that remains true for us. How does it speak to you now? Like, that becomes an exercise. Jesus is doing that in the Sermon on the Mount we talked about. He's saying, how do these laws, you've heard it this way, but how do they speak to you now? Like, what is God saying now? What does the law really mean? Like, and how have you reflected on it and let this thing... Because, again, the law... Jonathan talked about this extensively in one of his sermons. Like, the law is not meant to be this very, like, black and white thing all the time. It's meant to be reflected on. It's meant to be constantly... Like, like we're marinating somehow in the law all the time, meditating on this thing constantly, and it's soaking in, seeping into us, and it's making more and more sense. 
uh, and it's shaping us and forming us. Uh, and as the people did that, there were, there were people, we don't know, it's hard to know, uh, like, like who adds to this, which people are, are, are writing. What we do know is that there's this long list of manuscripts. Because again, remember, there's not one copy of Deuteronomy. There's hundreds, there's thousands of copies of, of Deuteronomy. And we're just getting pieces of them, right? That's how the Bible is put together. All of these scholars sit around and they go, wait, okay, this piece and this piece, they're the same. Look at that. And they were written, it looks like, a lot of years apart. And this one, much, much later. But look, it is remarkably similar. Hundreds of years passed, and yet this version is the same. How does that happen? Because they were really good at this. This is the way they function. They trained for years to do this as scribes. And this is the way it worked. And so there is like a sense of like trust and a, a deep sense of like they know what they're doing and they're not just like manipulating the text um, in this cavalier sort of way, which is what people always imagine, right? Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with like Bart Ehrman. He's a, a professor at, uh, at UNC that became real famous for, for saying essentially that the Bible is, is misquoting Jesus, et cetera, et cetera. All these, I think that was the name of one of his books. Um, so there's all this stuff. Well, there's all these inconsistencies. Like, yeah, but you're ignoring the remarkable consistency over thousands of years that is represented in this book. And so it's like, that's what's cool about it is like there's clearly something else happening besides just Moses sat down one day and wrote uh, these books. Um, there are other people present in it. And that doesn't, erode our faith in the thing in some sense it it makes it more robust uh like there, there's a, a real value to it and that's that's the way we see it we receive it as like no the church has read it for centuries as from moses they received it the way that that was what they were given right and that, that so we'll talk about that a lot the text as it is received like that's how we read it this is how it's been read by the church and that's how we want to read it uh, and so it's very easy, though, for some people to go, oh, well, if it wasn't written by Moses, well, then that changes the way I read it, and it should be this and this and this and this. And they break it apart, and it becomes something else entirely. But we always want to receive it the way that the church has received it and to read it the way, like, I want to do everything I can, and I'll never be able to completely. I want to read Deuteronomy like Jesus read Deuteronomy. How was Jesus interpreting Deuteronomy? How was his teacher, how were his parents teaching it to him? How do I get there? Because it's not helpful for me to sit thousands of years later and be like, oh, it wasn't really like that. This is how it really is. That, that's, it's arrogant. Uh, and that's what a lot of people want to do. Uh, and so it's like, it's, it's important for us to, to recognize that when we talk about all these different things, like, number one, nobody actually knows. You can never know for certain how this process works. Number two, um, what good is it if it's not authoritative to us? Like if it's not authoritative and it's not shaping and forming us the way it, sh it formed the people of God and, and Jesus himself. But yeah, sorry, that was a... He broke it. I broke it. There we go. Um, I think that that matters in, in a lot of ways. In, in your example of the Tebow thing, uh, whether, you know, mm -hmm. we want to throw him under the bus or not, we know it's probably a good possibility that that's the case. And at, at minimum, uh, no matter, if, even if you do write your own book, you have editors, you have other people that are yeah. going to write, say things that are going to compile Absolutely, things. Yeah. There are second and third editions. Mm -hmm. um, and so to know, too, that the way Jesus would have read it, if he read it as Moses speaking, we also know that in that context uh, that people would have been okay with this type of thing happening. Like they have a different understanding of what is being formed uh, in the text and being shaped uh, than we do in the 21st century. We have a much more historical kind of like scientific approach to saying this is who wrote it. Uh, if you go back and read ancient Greek philosophers, uh, Socrates doesn't write anything at all. Uh, but yet we will say Socrates said, and it's because Socrates' followers wrote things down for Socrates, 
and then that is now how we understand what Socrates' opinion on things were. So in the ancient Near East, they were okay and comfortable with this, and we are too in a lot of ways uh, that we don't always think about, but it matters, as you're saying, and I think it's, I, you did a good job of explaining how we see it, um, but I think it is important because you get this sense or this idea that they're trying to do something with Deuteronomy mm -hmm. that is uh, centered around formation and worship. Um, they're selecting certain things that were said. They're, they're making editorial uh, decisions. They're mm -hmm. compiling things. Uh, because if you read in the Old Testament, you'll know that there are a lot more laws that were given than what we just see in Deuteronomy. Yeah. Uh, and, or in the Torah in general, that there's something happening there, that they're picking specific laws to give us. They're picking certain things for us to hear later. And then the author of Deuteronomy, whether that in this part we know is not Moses, because at the end they're actually going to talk about Moses' death. Mm -hmm. And so we know in some sense somebody wrote something that wasn't Moses. Mm -hmm. And they're going to talk about these things, and we get that they're saying... Uh, that these are the ones that we want. These mm -hmm. are the ones because we want you to understand that this is your story. Mm -hmm. this is, and I think that that's why it matters in Deuteronomy. Something like Isaiah, maybe it doesn't matter quite as much. And there's a lot of controversy or yeah, like yeah. academic discussion around Isaiah. We have our opinions on that uh, and they're mostly the same. But we, you know, maybe are a little different on them at, at the same time. And it's okay. And we're like, it doesn't matter. Something like Deuteronomy, I do think it's important to understand in the Torah at large. Because we can't make scripture do something that it's not intending to do itself. And that goes back to Genesis, that goes back to Leviticus, and it goes to Deuteronomy. Uh, this is not meant to be this like checklist of like behavior and this way to live off these specific rules. Like it's not a, it's not a constitution as we've said. They're doing something here that is trying to form and shape us to worship Yahweh and to understand something about Yahweh. And yeah. so that's why I think it matters a little bit different in something like Deuteronomy and in the Torah than it does in uh, some of the other prophets and some of these other areas where we'll start squibbling over this person and that person. And just an aside, the manuscript should encourage you. Um, there are things that we take and we don't question that they have like a total of like six Manuscripts. I think it's the Code of Hammurabi. It has like six manuscripts they're working off of, and they're piecing together what we now have and understand is this historical document. Scripture has thousands, hundreds of different manuscripts that we can look at and, and compare, and that should encourage you that there is some real good academic work being done around Scripture. And so when we start talking about these things, it should equip your faith as much as it should also help you have a different understanding. But some people get nervous about that. They're like, what do you mean there's a thousand? No, 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 they're not different versions. It's just there's lots of historical evidence that this was the way it was. So one of the questions we got was if Deuteronomy, and I think it's connected to this kind of understanding of the law and authorship and all of this, is that if Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law, do we have more givings of the law, or is that Jesus? Uh, and I think that I say it's a good question that's connected to this, because I think that Deuteronomy is trying to imply what Kyle said to some degree, which is there is always going to have to be a continual re-understanding. So I would argue that there's lots of re-givings of the law, not, a thir not just a third, and even in Jesus, Jesus is going to argue that you must continue this work. Um, and, and you must continue to understand and to see and to know uh, what it means to follow mm -hmm. God, to follow Yahweh. 
And so I think the author of Deuteronomy would want us to see that this isn't meant to be a closed book. Like, you don't get to the end of the Torah and go, okay, now we know everything. Like, you're just now starting. Like, it's kind of the beginning of what you're doing. And so it's not intended to be like a second giving and then now we know everything. It's meant to understand that this is something that's going to perpetually happen again and again and that we're invited into. So one of the other questions we got connected to that, I think that answers that question, uh, but was as we talk about that, as we talk about re-understanding the law mm-hmm. culturally, uh, contextually, and they were very kind and said that they thought we've done a good job of helping us see how some of this gets brought into the future. But they asked, like, what are some of the pitfalls or kind of the dangers of talking about the law in that kind of way, in this contextual, mm-hmm. um, and I think I get the question, what they're coming from, of, yeah. like, how do we not just make it all contextual then? Like, how do we not just write it off as all, like, well, we've got to retell the law, it's 21st century, mm-hmm. um, and there are challenges to that. You and I have wrestled with these things uh, in the back for longer than we probably need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so give your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think there's evidence of that. Like uh, Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, is the early church wrestling with like, wait a second, how do we contextualize the law properly? Like, what of the law should we still be obeying? And they come up with this, this list, three, four things. Uh, that They say, hey, listen, we're not saying everyone you know, needs to be circumcised. If you're a Gentile believer, you don't need to be circumcised necessarily. Uh, you don't have to do that. Nobody is, is constrained in that sort of way. Nobody would do that. But that was a huge argument in the early church, right? But it's like, well, you, you should be careful about eating uh, food sacrificed to idols, I think, or food with blood in it. Like, so they were, they were specific about these things. So it's like they, they created this. And it's because they sat and they reflected and they prayed over these things. Uh, but yeah, like I, I think, number one, so that should tell you the conversation on contextualizing these things has been going on a long time. Uh, and it's an important one. Like we can't ignore that. Uh, but yeah, there is a danger. You have to walk uh, with wisdom when you start talking about those kinds of things because like, obviously all of us are going like, yeah, I mean, we, we don't expect that, that any of you as women will come with your heads covered into worship uh, and, and I don't expect that I'll have to, to, to cover mine uh, or excuse me, uncover mine each time I, I come in. It's just like you know, my, my brother-in-law is wearing a hat and I'm not bothered by it. But it's like my granddad would have lost his mind, right? Drew will stand up here and lead worship with a hat on. And it's like, we don't lose our minds. We're not uncomfortable with that because we recognize that we're contextualizing these things. We recognize that that's not necessarily that important. Uh, in our context, it doesn't communicate anything specifically important. Uh, and so we kind of like move beyond those things. Um, and always in the conversation, you end up with uh, conversations on sexual ethics, inevitably, uh, on the role of women uh, in the home or in society, whatever else. And it is. It's a thing that you have to walk with care because the New Testament seems to be doing that. Again, they're reflecting on this. They're contextualizing certain things and saying, hey, you can set that aside. You can move beyond this because there's this newfound freedom that we have in Jesus. If Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, then it has to change the way we see the law. It, It sets something different up. What it means to fulfill the law is not what we imagine it to be. It's already been done in Christ. And so it doesn't mean I throw out the law because clearly Jesus says I've not abolished it. But it means I reflect on it and I continue to, to live my life according to it in wisdom, right, and in discernment. And that's not something I do by myself. That's not something I sit at home and I say, well, you know what? It seems to me that this is what should happen. And it's like that, that is, I think, foolish. And I think that's generally in our society the way things work. That is not how they were doing it. That's not at all how they were doing it. They were not comfortable with that idea um, so they were doing this together, reflecting on this, and it was, it was something they were very cautious about. 
Um, and so, and again, that's part of what, like you talk about um, something that's happening over and over again. Deuteronomy is like a second giving, a third giving. Like if you, you read the rabbis, like Mishnah or, or Talmud, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. You can check that out. Um, these are rabbis who sit for hundreds of years and they say, what do you think this means in the law? How do we apply this in the law? And they've got different opinions. And some of these guys are kind of outliers, but generally they stay pretty close to one another. Yeah, I have a slightly different interpretation of this, a slightly different understanding of this. I think this would look this particular way. And that's some of what Jesus is doing. Jesus is approaching that. He's addressing some of those controversies that you know nothing about a lot of times that we don't always um, understand or know that are going on. But uh, yeah, that's important to recognize that, that contextualization is something we have to be very humble about. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. Generally we say, well, we're modern people and we are much, much more, you know, developed, like we've moved into this place of, of understanding these things at a much deeper level and therefore we can, we can kind of set aside that. And, uh, and that's a thing that happened in the early church. Marcion, if you've never heard about it, check, check Marcion out. Uh, he wanted to just completely cut the Old Testament out of, of our Bibles. He only wanted Luke and I think Paul, the, the, the letters of Paul. Because he was very uncomfortable with what he saw in the Old Testament. And he believed there were two different gods represented there. There was the God of the Old Testament, and there was this much better God that was in, represented in the New Testament. And the church had a problem with that. That's where we get scripture from, is that argument they were having over which books are actually authoritative and true. Uh, and so Marcion kind of creates that conversation, and the church responds to it and says, these are the books that we believe are actually authoritative. And so it's like a, a thing that we have to always be doing, but humility is what you see, and togetherness, community is what you see in the process of it. Um, not an individual in their bedroom reading their Bible going, sounds like this to me, I feel pretty good about it, you know, so that's what I'm going to do. But, yeah. yeah. And even uh, in that communal aspect, not just an individual, but something as Protestants, because one of the followers, like the last clarification or additional question that they asked was like, how do we systematically or kind of how do we have an approach to that to try to help us understand and, uh, I guess, filter, understand the spirit of the text? Yeah. And I think for me, one of the things that was really helpful was going to a seminary like Beeson. Um, also, just my upbringing, as Kyle will affectionately call me, a theological mutt growing up. Like, I have a, a weird mix of theological backgrounds. And so I've always appreciated other denominational or theological approaches that differ than mine. That's just something I've, because yeah. I was just raised in it. It was normal for me. And then Beeson solidified that of when we say communal, it is also understanding these things like beyond just me and you, beyond just like a small group, but like kind of the church at large. And so things that we'll rely on uh, are things like tradition, or we use the term around here a lot of the orthodox position or the orthodox approach. And we try to use that in a way to honor people that might disagree or have different interpretations or understandings mm -hmm. of something because what we're trying to say is historically this is the way the church has kind of understood this and that has seemed to be a trend towards this direction or that mm -hmm. direction and sometimes the church maybe in a moment will understand something in a very particular way and then the church kind of when I say the church I'm talking universal large like big scale and it'll, it'll course correct and so it's kind of going back historically and seeing, okay, what are some threads, what are some themes and some ideas that are popping up in these ancient texts that are eight, nine, ten thousand years old, and where does the church sort of follow that trajectory, and where does it get it wrong, why did it get it wrong, and how does it course correct? And so when you start to learn kind of that historical 
and, and this is what I was trying to say, is that we are not a community or a people that just arrived in the 21st century and were just handed this thing. This tradition has been shaped and formed for a very long time. Mm-hmm. A real practical example to this is uh, of how we see orthodoxy and tradition would be something along the lines of like, you do not need to read your Bible on a daily or regular basis or have this like perfect little, you know, 15 minute quiet time in the morning to be a believer and, and to be saved, whatever we want language you want to attach to that. But if you look to the tradition of the people that have gone before us, it seems that people that have done this for a really long time, generation after generation, it seems that if you read your Bible and are familiar with the text and you pray on a regular basis and you have time marked out, what bears itself out is that that is a way to be formed and shaped more like Jesus than to not do that. Mm-hmm. And so that is not a law. It is not a command. You do not have to have a 15-minute quiet time every morning. Mm-hmm. But what we have learned is that over time, based off the people before us, they seem to say, this is really helpful, though. And so that is a place where tradition mm-hmm. and the historical church can help shape and form. So that's kind of like a detached, practical. Sure. Yeah. But we try to use that same approach to reading the text, reading scripture, and going, okay, where do they say these opinions? And, and following that. So that's one of the systematic ways. The other one I'll say just real, real quick, and then we'll move off of this. I really like this topic until I could go for a long time. But uh, something that has helped me is kind of understanding, and this is where somebody like the Bible or something like the Bible Project is really, really helpful is because they're going to talk about this whole, this unified story that leads to Jesus. That's the language they're going to use. And that's something we were taught in seminary to approach and understand scripture in that kind of way. When you begin to see it as a story, what you understand is all stories have a movement. They, they have somewhere it's going. And, and as you begin to understand where scripture is going, you can start to look and kind of place yourself in that story. Where are you in that part of the story? Where, where are you at in the history of this thing? And you can kind of go, this continues, this doesn't. This is a trajectory that we see going on throughout the story of Scripture. And this is something we see that gets kind of corrected in the story of Scripture. And so that helps to give you some bearings of like, okay, we, again, the really important, fun part about Deuteronomy, we are a part of this story and we're a continuation of it. So what is the trajectory of that story? And that's beyond just a social moment or a political moment or a contextual moment, but it is something that really allows you to see and to understand like this bigger kind of broader thing that's happening that God's doing on earth. And so that's another systematic, and it gets, it is complicated, don't, don't get me wrong, uh, but it is something that I think is helpful. If you have more questions, follow up. One of the questions we got that is, I think, connected to this and would maybe be a good example, there's a lot of uh, nation-state, political language, uh, this idea of conquering, establishing um, that idea in the Torah, Deuteronomy, and it's going to get real heavy if you would keep reading throughout the Old Testament. And one of the questions we got was, uh, how do we as Christ followers um, engage in the political and how do we engage in kind of what it looks like to follow Jesus uh, as an American citizen that votes and, and maybe would want to be involved in government? You know, whatever, I'm adding things here to their question. But I think it's connected to some of this, and I think it's a way we could maybe talk about, too, a, a little bit more of giving a practical example of 
what you see that the people in the Old Testament are doing and what some of these laws are trying to do that we don't necessarily need to do anymore in that we're not trying to establish a nation state that follows, like we're not after a theocracy here. Yeah. Yet Deuteronomy would seem to imply, and the church has, yeah, yeah, and the church has used it before, historically, yeah. has kind of overemphasized some of those ideas. And yeah. so, an approach. Yeah, I mean, even in Deuteronomy, you can see the movement away from theocracy. And in some sense, it's this begrudgingly, God is like, you want a king like everybody else has got, and so you'll get one, and you won't like it as much as you think. Like, and it's just like, and I think that propensity that we all feel is like, we need somebody. Like, like we need a representative. We need a person. Is that necessarily bad? No, not always. Uh, it's just human. I think to some degree, I mean, they say to Moses, when he comes down from the mountain, they're seeing the lightning and all this stuff. They're just saying, no, 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 we're good. You keep going on the mountain, we'll stay right here. Man, this sounds good. We're, we're happy right where we are. You go and talk to the crazy, and, and we'll gladly listen. We'll just trust you because we don't want any part of that mess. Uh, like, there's this sense in which they want that, and they need a Moses-like figure always. Like, what are we going to do after you're gone? We're, we're going to need somebody like that. And it's like, no, that, that's not how it works. God is our king, right? But they're already moving away from that. I mean, like, it doesn't take long before they have a king and they start to move on from that. And God, I mean, like, if you read the Psalms, like, God's celebration of the king. Like, like God rejoices in a righteous king. Like, the, the, the king is figured as, as God's son, right? That picture says so there's not necessarily anything wrong with it. And, and if that's already happening then, then we have to expect that now, like the idea that we could create a world, like when, don't get me wrong, people mean well when they put out a sign that says Jesus 2024 or something like that. Like we mean really well. It's just like Jesus should be reflected in our politics. And I'm like, yes, absolutely. But the idea that we're going to find some figure who is redemptive and who's going to lead us to the promised land, it's like, no, that's just not going to happen. Like we have to, at the other end of the process, just kind of get, or the other end of the, the spectrum, excuse me, say, that's not going to happen. No matter who we put there, we'll be flawed. And we have to try to figure out, like, like who is who's hiding something, who's covering, who is trustworthy, who is, is honest, who is a, a person of integrity to put in that sort of position. It's complicated. It's messy. Um, but, yeah, I would say, in terms of what it looks like, the Old Testament is full of, like, warnings of all these mm -hmm. scenarios where it's like the people of God begin to connect their own sort of political um, ideas uh, their own political goals and desires, like that becomes the forefront of what's happening in Israel. And it's like, that's what makes them feel like they're going to be okay. And so sometimes they'll go into a battle that God has told them like they shouldn't. It's like, nah, we feel good about it. That's what we should do. And it's like, that, that's foolish. Don't, don't, don't do that. Or like uh, in Jeremiah, like Jeremiah says that the people, they say that they're going to do, like, we're good. Like we can continue to live in sin. Like the king is signing off on idolatry. All of these false prophets are saying it's okay. And they say, what? The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. But it's like, it's kind of like us being like, this is America. Like, we're, we're God's people, man. Like, this is a nation that was founded on Christian ideals, and therefore, like, we're good. And it's just like, be real careful with that, with the person who's, who's like, convinced you that, that they can bring America back to this, this great city on a hill, this ideal. Like, it's like, if you do that, because that means you're going to ignore all the terrible things that have happened, right? You're going to ignore, and that's exactly what they're doing. Temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, but you're ignoring what you're doing to the poor. You're ignoring the violence that you've inflicted on so many people. You're ignoring that you're not a people of peace. You're ignoring that you're not a people who are reflective of who God called you to be. You've, uh, you've neglected the law. You've done all these other things, and you just keep saying, but, but we're God's people. And it's just, like there's that sense, like when you begin to connect 
your political idea to this idea that, like, we're mm -hmm. God's party, like people joke about, you know, like this idea. And it happens on both ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Like, that's one of those things. Um, yeah, that, that's a different conversation. I won't, I won't say anything too controversial about either party. But, like, that's something we have to increasingly recognize is that we are meant as, if we're going to do it, we're not going to fit into either of these things consistently. We're not going to fit into either of these viewpoints consistently. We will find ourselves increasingly uncomfortable with both sides in that regard. And if we are there, I think we're healthy. I, I think that's important. That doesn't mean you can't be more often voting here or voting there, but it means if you're only going to vote here mm -hmm. all the time, like you're in treacherous waters. And you're, because then you're going to begin to say, well, but this is more reflective of what I believe from Scripture. This is more like Jesus. It's like, be careful of associating Jesus with any party or any political idea. Be careful with associating Yahweh with your goals and desires for Israel. Because God has something else in mind for his people. And you're beginning to say, but wouldn't it be great if we could have this, right? Like, it's always treacherous. And, uh, yeah, just like when they say, we want a king. It's like God's like... Stepping into some, some shaky waters there. Not shaky waters. How can waters be shaky? I guess they can be shaky. They I'm mixing shaky. things up. Yeah, All my metaphors okay. are thrown together. Uh, there you go. Yeah, no, I think that's good. Uh, and, and I would say that uh, what is helpful to, to take from that and what we see in something like Deuteronomy is this is where we're trying to practice this thing of like taking the spirit of the law, the idea of the law, this thing that God's trying to do, and this thing that we're able to see him do in a story that Jesus is going to kind of rebut some of that nation-state political idea and the rest of scripture is going to sort of uh, play the, the rest of the new testament is going to play that out right like that okay this isn't what we're after anymore um, we're after something else and then you can go back and read that into the old testament and see and great scholars have done this work of going oh like this was always god's plan like god's plan was always that all would come to know him that all nations and, and the language can be weird and this is it gets difficult and sometimes we just got to go that's hard like that's it's weird language um but we can see that like oh if you get behind that mm -hmm. there is some stuff going on there that you would see yahweh's intention was always that all people would come to know him and the way that he wanted to do that was to use this city on a hill and to draw people to him mm -hmm. and then now it's flipped after Jesus of mm -hmm. now we go out and are in this world in a different kind of way. Yeah. Uh, but the idea was always that all would come to know Christ or to know Yahweh mm -hmm. uh, before Christ. We, we would have just said Yahweh. Like there was never an exclusion or like exclusive kind of nature to the people of God, at least from Yahweh's commands. What we see is that the people of God make it that way and Yahweh gets involved and flips it and changes it and turns it upside down and says, no, 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 no. You, you're, you're trying to do it that way. I want you to do it my way. Um, and so in that, then, I think with politics, things of that nature, as long as you understand, as Kyle said, like, it is good to be political. We're all political. You can't exist in this space uh, that we find ourselves in the 21st century and not be a political being uh, to some degree. There's all sorts of philosophy behind this that you can get into. But there are political ideas but what I would say is just kind of as, a, as an approach to as some practical advice is uh, it can sound cliche, but, you know, it's John 1. Uh, err on the side of love. Mm -hmm. Always value the human being on the other side. If you can uh, remain to hold on, if you can hold on to somebody's humanity and dignity in the midst of disagreeing with them, if you can respect and value their thoughts and not just assume that they arrive to their opinions because they're a terrible person, but that they got to those opinions because they used logic and reason and they care about this and it's not just like, oh, well, whatever. Whatever side you're on, 
the less we can villainize and, and the more we can hold on to humanity. Because I think that's what made Jesus so, like, just beautiful. Is Jesus enters into so many stories and he's able to, like, help people feel more human, not less. And I think a lot of times when we get into politics or any debate, uh, we start making people feel a whole lot less human. And the goal should be to make them feel more human and to love them and to care for them. And if you're not doing that, regardless of what side you're on, then I think you are not doing politics in the way that Christ would call us to. Hmm. Uh, but I think that we have to hold on to that, and we have to hold on to the goals that uh, the Scripture holds on to, which is that all would be equal, all would be uh, uh, seen as human and valued in this kind of way. And we see the, these trends. But when we do that, like we have to give space that uh, I can think of people in my life that I disagree with politically, but we're after the same thing. We just kind of have two different ways that we think that that would get accomplished in the next 10 to 15 years. And I have to be okay with that. And they're not, you know, a racist or they're not this or that just because they don't subscribe to my politics. We can come together as Christians and go, no, what we want to see is equality. What we want to see is the poor fed, the sick cared for. And we may have different opinions. And that's okay. Um, and, and that's actually good because if we just sit on one side or the other, we would become a characterization of what we think we are. And it would go back to what you're saying of then it wouldn't be about Christ and it wouldn't be about what it would just be. Oh, this is just my politics. This is my beliefs. Uh, and so you have to find that honor and, and respect on the other side, I think, as well. So uh, I think that helps us kind of understand to some degree some of this uh, how we might figure out which of these things we continue to, to follow. This, uh, we've got a, this question asked a couple of different ways of how do we um, determine which laws we should follow, which laws are for today, which laws are for then, and, and that contextualization. And I think we're getting at some of that. Uh, if that question needs to be further uh, expounded upon, we can. Um, but I think that that's a good, we, we've talked about that to this point of, of understanding how there's this way in which some of this is, it's the heart, it's the essence, and it's putting yourself in the story, it's seeing the story, it's reading it in community, and so, uh, yeah, we'll jump, oh, go. I mean, yeah, like with scripture, there were a few tests that they used, like what makes us include a book in the Bible, like, like, like why is it, because there's a lot of things that, are, that were written that are not in your Bible, there are a lot of books that they valued, there were, you know, there was something they read for their own encouragement uh, and understanding and growth, they saw as wise, but they did not include in the scriptures. And that happened both uh, in the Jewish scriptures in the Hebrew Bible uh, and in our, uh, our own Old and, and New Testament, as we call it. Um, but they use like terms like canonicity. The idea is like, is it in lots of other places? Do you see this book? Do you see this idea, this law? Do you see it represented in a lot of different places? Do you see it represented in all of these different um, by all these different voices, right? Do you see, uh, apostolicity was another thing they would use. The idea is like, is it connected to the apostles? Is it connected, so it's like, is it connected to these authoritative figures or is it outside of the realm of that? Uh, like those sorts of ideas, like th those things were really important. Apostolicity, canonicity, um, what's the other I'm trying to think? Doesn't matter. I don't want to get you guys too lost, but the church had these systematic means whereby they would work through those things and say, wait, wait, we see this law continuing to be, and again, like when we start talking about things like, uh, like women or sexuality or whatever else, you look and you go, no, the New Testament shows people who've reflected on those things and are still kind of holding to them. It also shows people who've reflected on these other things and they're not holding to them. And there's like this, this level of wisdom. So it's like, I think we have to follow in, uh, in that tradition 
of trying to create. And I do think it's helpful to have some sort of like consistent means of doing that. And I think the early church demonstrates. So we can talk more about that. Whoever asked that question, we can talk more about that because I think that's a, that's a long conversation. Like, okay, how do I look at a law and break it down? Almost like it's a case study. Here's a law. How is it not authoritative or authoritative in my life? Like that is a complicated work. To, and that's not something we could answer like here because, yeah, there's so many. Um, but yeah, we could, we could walk through something like that. I'd be interested to have that conversation. Continue. One of the sub-questions, I forgot, I think this is worthwhile, because uh, I think a lot of people would maybe have the same question even if they didn't ask it. Like I said, this question got asked multiple times already this morning, but the sub-question was like, is, is it the ones, like the laws we follow, are, is it only the ones, or is it mainly the ones that we see repeated in the New Testament? Uh, things like that. And so, yeah. what I would say quickly is not exactly, sort of. Sure. But even going back to your case study idea, is that gets back to this idea of the laws can't be like what you're saying. Like I think it's helpful as you take that out. Is, is they were never intended to be just a rule book or just like, hey, here's these ten things. Yes. Um, you're going to see that they were always meant to be something that helped shape and form you into something else, and that they was meant to bring wisdom and insight. But it's like our 21st century minds just really, really, I think, struggle. Yeah. With hearing the word law, hearing the word rule, hearing uh, whatever it is, that we, however we want to talk about it, and going like, oh, well, so then I'm supposed to either do it or I don't. Either it is or it isn't. I'm right or I'm wrong. And mm -hmm. it's just like, that's just, just not the philosophical framework that they had for the world that they were living in. Uh, and, and that's hard. And that's where it does get messy and challenging, and you do have to wrestle with it. Um, and so, yes, the New Testament is helpful because you see that historical kind of narratival theme continuing um, but Paul's and Jesus I mean Kyle preached on this that like Jesus is going to break all the laws and then also fulfill them Paul's going to say that everything is permissible but not everything is beneficial yeah. and so like you're getting at this kind of wisdom idea that mm -hmm. comes in behind it this is an aside we'll answer this one I think it you could probably answer it relatively quickly and it's uh, breaking with the theme that we're on to some degree and you actually need some of the story before Deuteronomy to help answer this question. But uh, they're, they're asking about Moses and, and why Moses wasn't able to enter into the promised land mm -hmm. and what that means. And uh, for them, it feels as though it's something that goes beyond like kind of personal understanding. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't always seem fair. Uh, and it doesn't always seem like it's something that... Uh, I, I mean, I, I think I, I can commiserate with them of, of this tension yeah. behind yeah. Moses. It's like, why doesn't he get to go? Like, it does seem unfair. How does it tell us that Moses didn't get to enter in? And then the last phrase in the book is like, no one since Moses has arisen that was like him, who saw God this way, who talked to God this way. It's like, so why doesn't he get to go in? I don't understand. This doesn't make any sense. Like, why would he not get to go in? Like, why could we not just fix this? It's the same way with Saul to an extent. Saul is a king. It's like, he made like two mistakes. Yeah, he's an idiot, but we're all idiots. Like, we all mess this up. Like, why does he not get any grace? It's like, Saul, out. And it's just like, God has determined this. And yeah, there, there's a level of mystery to it, uh, like understanding all those things. But a big part of the book of, uh, especially like if you read um, 27, 28, 29, is this picture of consequence. God is articulating that it's like, what you do has consequence. Uh, and it's just like naturally it has consequences. By God's hand it has consequences. God will choose uh, to bless them for, for obedience. Uh, and he will allow terrible things to come on them for their disobedience. And it's like there's this 
dynamic. Like, how do we know where it's just natural consequences for doing terrible things? Because we recognize that happens. And God giving consequences directly to his people for doing terrible things or you know, whatever else. That's a hard thing to know. Uh, and, but that's a big part of the conversation. And I think it's preserved that way. And Moses doesn't get to enter in because, like, this is going to be a part of the story. You read Joshua, like, a few chapters into the book of Joshua, right after Deuteronomy, um, you're going to step into to all of this stuff. And you realize, like, here's a man who's done something foolish. God says, don't steal anything from Jericho. It all needs to be destroyed. You don't need to, you know, hoard gold and, and jewelry and whatever else for yourself. And what does he do? Akan keeps it for himself, and his entire family suffers for it. And the people of God suffer for it. They lose this battle, this whole thing. It's this picture of, like, there's consequences not just for you. What you choose to do with your life, it affects you and others. It has effects. There's consequence for all these things. And it's like Moses is a picture of, like, really painful consequences, and not necessarily God's anger. This is just how God's economy works uh, to some extent. It doesn't mean God doesn't bless people who do terrible things. It happens all the time. David is a picture of, of that. Like, here's a guy who's pretty terrible. He's at least as terrible as Saul, and yet somehow God sticks with him. Uh, and it's just like, we don't, we don't know. There's, there's not a whole lot of, of understanding to that, but there's clearly something going on, uh, and what, what God knows of, of Moses' heart and uh, that we don't. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's not necessarily a great answer to why he, he's excluded for this one episode where he chooses to, to strike the rock rather than speak to the rock and, and get water out of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that narrative's a little earlier, not in Deuteronomy. Yeah. Um, I, I think this would be a good place. We'll land this plane. Um, I think we've answered most of the questions and I'll mm -hmm. kind of combine two here mm -hmm. to tag on to what you said and we can move into our time of communion as well. But, uh. One of the questions, or, or some of the questions we've got around this idea of like themes and ideas uh, that we hope to like take from the series, and, and one of the things I've said repeatedly while we've been preaching is this idea of like understanding our story, the place we find ourselves, uh, both now and in the context of this overall arching thing. And like one of the, another question we got that's sort of similar to that was what are some of the ways that we can like practice and remember and, and come back to this story, this idea that we're connected to this and this stream, if you will, this thread mm -hmm. that we're all on. Um, and if that is one of our ideas that we want to hold on to from this and, and kind of take forward, uh, that's not the only theme. And we'll get into some of the themes and ideas as well in the next three weeks of what it means for Mosaic to be this people and continue some of that. Um, the same vision that Moses is going to give to the people of God before they enter is, I think, a, a relative or a relevant vision for us today in the 21st century still. Mm -hmm. But as we look at that and as we think of this story and this idea that we're a part of and that this is our story, I think it touches on the politics. It touches on the laws that we should follow and how we follow them. Because I think in the humility and the grace of understanding politics or opinions on which laws to, to interpret, which laws should you follow, which laws should I follow, maybe those are different, uh, maybe we're convicted. I like following a more traditional kind of Sabbath that you would see reflected in the laws of the Old Testament. Uh, Kyle's family doesn't practice that in the same kind of way that we do, and yet we both like love and value and cherish that like uh, heart of what Sabbath principle means for us today. Like we're not, neither of us are wrong. And so there's this thing that happens where we have to have grace, we have to have kindness, we have to have humility in it all. And I think that in the politics and what you see in something with like what happens to Moses and in David and some of the kings and prophets that are going to come before us, the thing I love about scripture is that they don't hide the failures. 
They don't hide the sticky stuff, the, the difficult stuff. Uh, the authors and the people that put scripture together in the history of the church, we don't try to sort of sweep all of that under the rug. And instead, we sort of embrace this idea that we're broken, fallen, that there's something that we lack at times, that there's, something, there's ways in which we mess up and there's grace and there's forgiveness offered to us through God and that Yahweh is always attempting to restore this back. And I think that it is helpful to come back to this idea. And when you place yourself in this story and you see Moses, and for whatever reason, and I have questions too, that like why doesn't exactly he get to go in? It does seem unfair. But nonetheless, what we see is that, that Moses can be spoken of the way he is at the end of Deuteronomy and can also have some pretty large uh, failures as a leader. And Abraham failed as a forefather. Isaac and Jacob are going to make huge mistakes and the story of the people of God is never trying to hide that. And it is always trying to acknowledge it. And it affects how we talk about politics, right? Because we have to understand that I'm no different. You're no different. And you're arrogant to think so. If you think, well, I've got it all figured out and I don't make mistakes and I'm all good and I'm not biased or any of these things, like I've just got it all. And it's like, well, don't you think that maybe you have your own biases and, and your own opinions? And we're all, as Jesus will say, like we're mixed. We're wheat and chaff, yeah. and there's going to be a separation moment. And the idea and the hope of living this life and following Jesus is that we become more and more wheat, and that there's something that when the separation happens, that there's something there that's substantial and that's eternal and that we're pursuing. And this story tells us that that's not always the case for humanity, and that humanity's mixed up. And that there's lots of failures. And then when we look at a world where there is failure, where there is shortcoming, and there is evil and difficulty, we're given a narrative and an explanation for it. And we go, yeah, of course. Of course they messed up. And it's not like, oh my gosh, I can't believe somebody messed up. But we go, yeah, this has been the case. And Yahweh and Jesus have been gracious and kind to continue to provide a way, despite our failures and our shortcomings, to take on the very sin that we should have born ourselves because of our own evil and fail failure and death that we brought on. I love this idea as we move to the table. The, there's this way in which Jesus becomes the thing and is the thing that what we see in Torah that Yahweh would never ask of us. Kyle said this when he preached on the laws and this idea stuck with me this whole kind of series. The, when you go back to Abraham and Isaac what you see in that moment is that somehow Yahweh was trying to tell them that I'm not going to ask you the thing that all the other gods are going to ask of you. When we talked about the Shema, and we talked about that Yahweh is a God that hears, the other gods have power, the other gods have uh, rules, the other gods have things, and it, they will help you along the way. Money, serving money and letting money serve you, whatever you think, like that's going to be helpful, right? But once it uses you, once it runs out, once you fail it, once you no longer are helpful towards it achieving its goals, those gods, those systems, they will spit you out. They're done with you. They will ask everything of you until you can give nothing else and then they'll move on. And what we see in something like Deuteronomy, in this mixed bag, this way in which we see what's going on with Moses and the people of God and what's going to continue to happen and what has happened, we see a God that says, I will not ask everything of you in that kind of way. Yeah, 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 you got to die to the way you think things are supposed to be, and you have to sacrifice things, and, and following Jesus is by no means all like rainbows and unicorns. 
like it, it is to wake up and it's to die to oneself. But the beauty is, is that God's never asking you to give up yourself in that kind of way. What he's actually saying is give up on the idea that you think you want. Give up on the dreams and the goals that you think you need. And understand that what I am offering you is something more you, not less you. What I'm offering you is more joy, deeper hope, more peace. But it's going to be in a way that is different than what you can conceive of or understand. And he says, I won't ask of you of your firstborn. I won't ask of you to sacrifice and to die in that kind of way. I won't ask of you to take your wife back after she has cheated on you. I won't put that in the laws. But I will do it for you. I will take you back even though you've cheated on me. I will give up my life. I will give up my firstborn so that you might be able to become more of who you are intended and meant to be. That you might be able to experience joy, hope, peace, gladness in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hardship. And this is the gift of Jesus on the cross. This is the hope that we find in something like the table is that we're reminded that God is inviting us into existing and being in a new kind of way, to be human in a different kind of way. And this is the story of Scripture, that we're being called to exist in a different kind of way, and that these people will be invited into this life and in the midst of it, when you find it, when you grab a hold of it, the Lord meets you there. And when you fall short and you fail... And, and you seem to lack the ability to live the way that Yahweh has called you to, that God has called you to, he meets you there, and he provides a way. And we believe that that's most fulfilled in Jesus, and that it's given to you as a gift, as an offering, to participate in this. And so then, for me, this is my own personal story. I don't think we do this enough in, in church anymore. We don't talk about, like, how we understand things, because, you know, we want to be whatever, more objective, or, or just, like, truth in this kind of different kind of way but in my life what I do when I hear that I, I begin to approach the laws and I see them and I go it doesn't feel so restrictive anymore it doesn't feel so confining we had this conversation with our boys the other day and we said hey actually when we tell you you can't do that it's not because we don't love you it's a very candid kind of like it's one of those moments where they weren't completely unregulated and they asked this really like kind of profound question and they're just like, well, why do people not like little kids so much that they give them all these rules? And I said, buddy, it's not that the, we don't like little kids. It's actually that we love you. Like, we love you a lot. and We want you to be safe. And we want you to experience life to its fullest. And so we have some rules because you need to be protected. It's, because we, it's not that we don't care. It's that we care so much about you. And we want you to have this experience. And I see when we start talking about Jesus and Yahweh in this kind of way, what he's inviting us into, what he wouldn't ask of us that he asks of himself or that he does himself. is this beautiful picture of a God that's inviting you into a life that makes the laws not feel quite so much like that they are restrictions, but they're actually freedoms and they're graces. And we get to come and to participate in that life in a different kind of way. And it makes me see the things that he would ask of me, not as like, oh my gosh, I can't do that, that sounds terrible. But it goes, okay, this is going to be really hard and I, that's not what I want to do, but I, but I trust I trust that you wouldn't ask more of me than what I would, you know, need to give up. That whatever this is, that this is an invitation into more. Just like it is in the garden. Just like it is at the tree. It was never that they weren't supposed to have the knowledge of good and evil. It's that they were supposed to have it in the way that God intended them to have it on his terms. And once they took it for themselves, things went awry. And so that's the invitation and the gift 
of who Jesus is and what we're being offered today here and now in this story. And as we come and we return back to it again and again, practical ways to do that. Pray the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Tell this story. Come back to the text. Pray again and again. Come to the table weekly. As often as you can, come and hold the bread and the cup that remind you of the elements of Christ's body and blood broken and poured out for you so that you can come and you can receive the gifts for the people to live in this kind of way. Understand your own brokenness and your own sin and know that God loves you there in the midst of it still. And that he longs to be with you. You do this over and over and over in such a way that you begin to live it and it becomes your story. And you get to embrace that story. So we're going to do things slightly different this morning and I'm doing this on the fly partially just because of time. But I also think that this would be helpful. Normally, I'll invite you up to take the elements, go back to your seats, we'll all come back up and take together. But instead, this morning, what I want to encourage you to do is the band plays the next two songs. Just come as you see fit. Come whenever you're ready. Come, take the bread, the cup, the body broken for you, the blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins that represented all that was there in the Passover meal that Christ celebrated with his disciples before his crucifixion. Come and receive these gifts. Remember and reflect and who Christ was. And just with the people around you, the person behind you, whether you know them or not, just turn around and look one another in the eye and say, the body broken for you, take and eat. The cup poured out for you, take and drink. And embrace this story amongst ourselves. And be reminded that this is our story and we're invited, we're invited into this and that this is our forgiveness. This is our grace. And as we do so, we're meant to embody this and embrace it so much so that it changes and forms us and shapes us that we can then be this gift to the wanting and waiting world around us. So we can continue this story and extend this invitation to others that they might know and experience God loves them and cares for them. And that there is a narrative and that there is an idea and that there is an explanation and that there is a hope for all the brokenness and loss that we see in the world. So as the band plays, they're going to play two songs, and then Kyle's going to speak a benediction over us to end us. But just come, grab the elements, go back to your seats, take with those around you, or take at the table by yourself if you'd prefer to do it that way. But just allow the Holy Spirit to speak and to move in these moments. I'll be in the back. I'd love to pray with you during this time, uh, before or after communion. Talk to us after the service. If you have questions, continue to ask them. We love this part. We love talking and dialoguing and discussing what it looks like and what it means to allow the scriptures to shape and form us in such a way that we can become more like Christ. So come receive the gifts of God to the people.